Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing. The next day, it was an uproar. It's March 2003. Mike Morrison is a resource officer at Columbia High School. And Mike Morrison is in trouble. This thing was blew out of proportion. It was not a normal day the next day. The Black community wants him gone, including the kids. When it first started, they were all silent protests. We would just walk out. RB is one of those kids. He's a senior at Columbia High School. Literally, everybody would just get up and walk out of class. And we would walk out into like the front of the school and stand there. These kids, this community, were protesting against Mike. It was minority parent groups upset with me, marching in front of the building. With an accusation that could ruin his career. The parents were claiming that I beat the young man up in the cafeteria. This episode is about what it means to police your own people. From Curious Cast and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode four, Officer, Officer, Overseer. Listening to the show, you probably know a bit about Maplewood by now. But one thing we haven't talked about is the town's focal point on Parker Avenue. It's a gothic brick and stone building, all pointed roofs and a tall clock tower. It's pretty posh, actually. Kind of imposing. It was big. It was big. I said, this place is ridiculous. At 14, Arby remembers taking it in on his first day of freshman year. I got lost a lot when I first got there. An upperclassman had to get me to where I needed to be <laughs> because I could just, he, I looked out of place. Kids come here from across two districts, South Orange and Maplewood. The building stands tall, taking up space, unapologetic and charming. Architecturally, it's something of the past, but with more modern extensions, this building represents Maplewood today. This is Columbia High School. For many families who move to Maplewood, the education system there is the key draw, and Columbia is the biggest draw of all. The school has a stacked record. Students from Columbia have a reputation for going to top-ranked colleges and going on to pursuing ambitious, highly successful careers. The school is super diverse, way more diverse than the neighborhood of Maplewood as a whole. And the school's alumni roster is elite. And I mean elite. Zach Braff, SZA, Ms. Lauren Hill, all walked the corridors of Columbia. In fact, Lauren Hill met Pram Michelle here. They then joined forces with Wycliffe Jean to become the chart-topping Fugees. Not only were the group part of the town's ever-growing Haitian population, but they put Maplewood and South Orange on the map as game changers in the nation's hip-hop and R&B scene. So you get it. The high school is the crown jewel of Maplewood. And this building is crucial to Mike's story. 
Mike had been a juvenile detective, meaning he'd spent the majority of his time working with young people in Maplewood. In 2001, he took a position at Columbia High School to work as a school resource officer. Now, what that means is... It was natural progression because I was a juvenile detective and I had a relationship with the community, I had a relationship with the kids and the parents. So me going to high school was like, like a natural progression. Taking this job meant he was now based at the high school instead of the station. And because of his reputation as a juvenile detective, Mike was known by the kids. He was kind of a big deal here. I remember him saying something to me one time. He was like, you are not bad. You're not a bad kid. You're just mischievous. <laughs> he said that to me. He was like, none of you guys are bad. You guys are just mischievous. Um, that's what he would always say to us. Mike was hardly the first police officer to work in a school. Police officers have been placed in U.S. schools since the 50s, and calls for their presence have ebbed and flowed over time. The idea was started by the LAPD, and by the 1960s, many forces were used to police newly desegregated schools. Our schools will have the highest standards in the world, igniting the spark of possibility in the eyes of every girl and every boy. Fast forward to the 90s, after a spike of deadly shootings that decade, President Bill Clinton was finding new ways to get more officers into schools. But a lot of people saw things very differently. Putting all these cops in schools? It wasn't about school shootings, they said. It was part of a wider anti-black moral panic within policing right across the US. The $30 billion crime bill passed after tough battles in Congress. This is, as advertised, a very tough, straightforward bill that the cops want, the prosecutors want, the people need. In addition to banning more guns, the bill provides for 100,000 new police. It extends the death penalty to more crimes. It's one of President Clinton's biggest legislative victories so far. The 1994 crime bill led to a massive increase of black and brown people behind bars and saw more police presence in schools. In the early 2000s, the federal government spent hundreds of millions of dollars hiring nearly 7,000 school resource officers. Mike was one of them, and he had a lot of power. They treated me like a principal. They treated, they treated me like an assistant principal with a, with a gun. You know, I was interviewing other principals. I was in all the board meetings. It was, it was a wonderful job. Now, I get the concept of cops in schools is pretty foreign for those of us who aren't American. But Mike didn't see it that way. For him, it was essential. The school resource officer was like a community piece. I taught classes. I went to, you know, the law class I spoke to, the health classes. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with that fatal vision goggles that you put on the kids and they think they're drunk. So I was busy. Mike thrived at Columbia and he worked closely with the school's principal. Together, they were a force to be reckoned with. She supported Mike in his role. He developed a mentoring program and worked hard to establish real, genuine relationships with the students. Mike was happy. Definitely um, best years of my police career where I fell in love with teaching. So... That's how it looked to Mike. But how did Mike look to the kids? By the time we got to our senior year in high school, he knew all of us. He kind of knew how to navigate himself around us. He knew that he was black. He knew he was black. So he acted like he was black. Mike felt an affinity with the black kids at Columbia. After all, he watched most of them grow up and graduate. 
he wasn't just working with them, he was understanding them. As well as its academics, Colombia was known for its diversity too. The school was a melting pot. As the only high school in Maplewood and South Orange, kids came from all over to shoot their shot at the American dream. But looks can be deceiving, and the vibes on the inside, especially in the cafeteria, told a different story. So in the cafeteria, all the white kids would all be together. All the white kids who didn't go out for lunch would be on the other side and they would all be together. And all the black kids were on the opposite of the uh, cafeteria. I've always thought cafeterias are very telling spaces. They see and hear a lot. And this description is pretty accurate for me. Looking back at the cafeteria on my own college campus in New York, it was unofficial segregation. Sports teams in one corner, theater students in another, international students crowding together, Hispanic and black students with their own tables. Even the football team with around 90 guys would sit in their place. Black players on one end of the table, white players on the other. It was the same in Maplewood. And in that school cafeteria, everything would fall apart for Mike. One lunchtime, in a matter of seconds, everything changed. He forgot for one moment what it was to be black, what it meant to be a black man, and that he was once a black boy too. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. You got a glimpse of what happened in the cafeteria at Columbia High School right at the start of the series. Now, I'm going to tell you the full story right from the beginning. But I should say, there's one person you're not going to hear from. The kid at the centre of it all. Orlando. My producer Charlie found his number and called him. He was guarded, a bit taken aback by being called out of the blue about something that happened so many years ago. After a stilted few minutes, an awkward conversation came to an end. But a few minutes later... The phone rang with an unknown number. And that's how we first met RB, Orlando's best friend. He's never talked about the situation. He'll talk to me about it, but he's not going to talk to anybody else about it. But it turned out RB was there during those events in the cafeteria 20 years ago. And he was willing to speak to us. So let's go back to March 2003. Mike picks up the story. There's 2,000 students in there, so... There's no such thing as a quiet lunch at that school. Mike's on duty. It's the usual chaos, but nothing out of the ordinary. And just like normal, everyone's in their groups. You might have the jocks sit together, the cheerleaders sit together, the Haitians will sit together, the blacks will sit together. Mike's been a cop for 15 years now, but his life is about to change. And it all starts with a group of students. This particular group actually they were Haitian-American. Seven or eight of them, these guys were like upperclassmen too. Can I say they weren't criminal bad, but their behavior wasn't the best. Their behavior in school was not the best. RB says these students were his friends. They were Haitian, 
Some of them were born in the US, others had moved here when they were just young kids. They were part of the community and part of Colombia. But over the last 24 hours, the tension had started to build. So the day before, there was a fight that happened outside. And you, you find out quickly about these things because people just talk. Arby says he remembers a fight breaking out during lunch period off the school grounds nearby. There was a huge fight that happened, but it wasn't like a, a fight that was out of the ordinary. The only difference was that it ended up breaking a window. This broken window meant the cops were called in. This was not a good look for Columbia High School at all. So the principal had a message for the students. The next day, lunch gets interrupted because the principal wants to um, have a conversation with us in the cafeteria. She comes in, she says, you know, she lays down the law. So I heard her speech and I heard what she was saying. And I knew that's how I knew that it was because of a fight that happened the day before. According to RB, her position was clear. Stop messing around. No more fights and no more broken windows. The message was received by the students in the cafeteria, so things moved on. Now, it just so happens that RB had two lunch periods that day. He was planning to spend the second one with his best friend, Orlando. They went way back. We met in Irvington <laughs> in 1991. Orlando and I was in the same grade at Madison Avenue School in Irvington, New Jersey. And we would walk home together because the house that he lived in was right next door to my uncle's house. But back to the cafeteria and that second lunch period. I said, yo, I'm going out for lunch. You want to come? And he says, nah, I ain't got no money. Now, if they wanted, students could leave the school grounds to buy lunch. But for the students who couldn't afford to do that, the cafeteria would provide free school lunches. And um, he was going to just go get free lunch that day. I said to him, I'm going to go ahead and go. Given everything that followed, even to this day, RB feels guilty. He says if he'd have offered to pay for Orlando's lunch that day and they'd left the school grounds, none of this would have happened. But I think the most troubling part about this part of the story is the fact that Orlando would have never done that to me. And I think that's I think that's what's so tough about this conversation is because Orlando's loyal. He's very loyal. And I've, I'm the one that said, oh, I ain't got no money. He would have said, no, come on, I got you. I'll pay for it. But I didn't say that. At the time, Arby didn't think much of it. I mean, it was just another lunch period. So I just was like, all right, cool, I'll see you later. So Arby leaves the school to grab lunch, and then he heads back. But as he enters the school and reaches the cafeteria, that's when he notices that something is off. So I get back in there and I see the kids are still sitting in the cafeteria and Officer Mike is in the middle of the cafeteria, actually. He's walking around trying to, you know, assort his authority and say, but without saying anything. He's just doing it by his physical presence. Arby doesn't enter the cafeteria at this point. Instead, he stays outside and manages to get a view through the windows and the door. He can hear the principal speaking with a microphone. And it doesn't sound like this is a pleasant conversation happening. And you see kids through the window visibly upset. This is where things get a little hazy. RB spots his best friend, Orlando, a small guy wearing baggy clothes. He looks upset. According to RB, there's some concern about lunch being held up. He gets up to leave the cafeteria and he's upset, visibly upset. And 
the principal doesn't care that he's upset. That's RB's account of it. This is where Mike Morrison comes in. Our principal was several feet away from them, but I was in earshot of what was occurring, of her telling them to sit down and them not listening to her. That was the first sign of trouble right there. They wasn't listening to the teacher. To be honest, we don't really know what caused things to escalate so quickly. I mean, it happened 20 years ago. But things did escalate. Arby says Orlando had had enough of waiting to eat. He wants to leave. But Orlando had already, at that moment, had a relationship where Officer Mike knew him and Officer Mike knew what Orlando was about. He knew Orlando wasn't going to do much. What Orlando was going to do was he was going to walk out that cafeteria and just leave and just go find something to eat. And so on this particular day, one kid got upset, yelling, you know, like, don't be talking to me. Or you ain't telling me what to do. His arms going up and down, his, his arms flailing like that. In my head, I was like, what is going on with this kid? He went running toward the principal. That's Mike's account of it, but it's not how RB remembers it. He says Orlando wasn't running. He was just trying to leave the cafeteria. So I grabbed him. I gave him the bear hug just to close his arms together just to stop his arms from flailing. And so in that bear hug, we fell to the ground. And in the process of stopping him, Officer Mike picks Orlando up and body slams him on the floor. And Orlando's face hits the ground. I didn't want to land on the kid and hurt the kid. Yeah, I wasn't trying to hurt him. I gave him the bear hug just to stop his arms from flailing. Orlando's down on the ground. He's looking out towards the window of the, the, the glass door, and he sees me. But I don't go in to the cafeteria. RB was in shock. He was frozen. As he saw it, his best friend was hurt, and nobody was there to help him. What happened immediately after, right? His friends looked like, looked like for one second that they wanted to intervene. And I looked up at them and gave them the look, you know, like, oh, really? I said, you guys want this to go like that? None of that situation was Orlando's fault. None of it. And the situation should have never gotten to where it got to, but it did get to that. Arby felt helpless and let down. And I felt all the adults in that situation could have prevented it. All the teachers who had lunch period duty at the time knew Orlando. But their hands were just like, it was almost like they were tied and they, were, they, they couldn't do anything. Mike arrested Orlando for disorderly conduct and escorted him out of the cafeteria. Mike stayed with him until the cops arrived. They put him in the car and drove him down to the station. And it felt like it was all over. Why did you feel like you absolutely had to intervene? For safety reasons. Not intervening would have been like a dereliction of my duty. If I didn't take action, I might as well left because I've been ineffective in my position after that day. Why am I even there if, if, that, if that could happen in my presence? But Mike was wrong. It wasn't over. I was charged with police brutality. Now, we'll come back to the cafeteria incident in a minute. But first, Arby. We wanted to talk to Arby not just because he saw what happened in the cafeteria that day. 
Turns out he had his own history with Officer Mike. His own reason to fear him. His own reasons to think the worst. R.B. moved to Maplewood with his family in the early 90s. Their journey of immigration was long, from Haiti to East Orange to Newark to Irvington, and finally to Maplewood. And in the summer of 1999, when he was about to go to middle school, at just 10 years old, he had his first run-in with the police. I uh, was bored in the house. (laughs) At the time, R.B. was friends with his neighbor. They were close. They would play in each other's backyards, and they even shared a bike. My parents never bought us a bike. They couldn't afford it. So we would share his bike, but we would just take the bike whenever. Because the kids were in and out of each other's houses so much, Arby says he was used to taking the bike and playing with it when he wanted. According to Arby, it was an agreement between him and his friend. He would be like, oh, just go grab it from the garage or grab it from the basement. Most of the time it was in the basement. And it was a small bike. We were kids. So we would just go down there, pick it up, bring it outside and just ride it around. So one day, Arby says he went to get the bike. And I didn't know he wasn't home. And I went to the house. All I had was basketball shorts on, I think. Yeah, I had no shirt on, no shoes. I just went to the, his house next door, opened up their basement door, went down there into the basement to get the bike. But Arby says somebody else was in the house that day, and they got the wrong idea. According to him, they heard some movement in the basement and thought someone had broken into the house. Apparently, they thought they were being robbed. Somebody who lived in the house heard somebody down there. They locked the basement door. While I'm down there trying to figure out how to get out, they call the cops. Things spiral quickly. One minute, he says he was grabbing his friend's bike. The next minute, the cops had been called. RB recalls being terrified. He hears the cops arriving and hears the commotion on the other side of the door. He remembers feeling he needs a way out. He needs to wait for the right opportunity to act. When the door slowly opens, he takes his chance. I just hit it and run out. I ran through all the adults that was there. I saw cops and ran through all of them and I ended up in somebody else's backyard and there was a cop chasing me the whole time. According to RB, the cop chasing him was Officer Mike. That's who arrested me and took me into the Maplewood Police Department with just shorts on, no shoes, no shirt. They took me to the police station and my mom had to come pick me up from the police station. Let's stop for a moment. Just imagine it. R.B. was a 10-year-old who says he'd done nothing wrong. He was apparently just borrowing his friend's bike. But he says he was chased and caught by a very big, very strong police officer, Officer Mike. And according to R.B., he ended up at the police station wearing nothing but shorts. Even if Mike was just doing his job, that experience is traumatic for any kid. When I was speaking to R.B. about this memory, I couldn't help but notice he was talking about it almost as if he witnessed it rather than lived it. Kind of emotionally detached. He was so young at the time that he couldn't quite process his emotions, but he knew it was bad because of the way he spoke about his mum. Immigrants, when they come to America, there's one thing that they they all have in common. And the one thing that they believe, stay away from cops. Stay away from any type of law enforcement. Uh, Anything that has to do with the law, stay away from it. Arby's mum lived by this rule. And picking her 10-year-old son up from the police station was not something she ever wanted to do. 
And for my mom, that was terrifying for her having to deal with that. Um, she cried that whole night and then she um, sent me to Canada the next following weekend. After what happened, Arby says he was sent to Canada to spend the rest of the summer with his aunt. We asked Mike about this incident with Arby. He was shocked to hear the account. He says he can't remember it. So we do only have Arby's side of the story. What Mike does remember is that during the 90s, Maplewood had a bike theft problem. And as a beat officer, he ran after a number of kids in town. Honestly, he was more shocked at the fact that a kid went into a house that wasn't his own, took someone else's property, then tried to outrun the police. So the story sounds like uh, consequences of natural progression. That's like natural progressions of the actions the young man took. So you have no recollection at all of this? I just don't remember that particular incident in my 22 years there. But apparently, the experience has stayed with Arby. Even today, as a grown man in his 30s, he says the impact the incident had on him was detrimental. I knew cops weren't good people, weren't good things to be associated with. So... I was terrified of them. I stayed as far as hell away from them as much as possible. But that's pretty hard to do when your town is just a three-mile radius. For RB, it felt like Maplewood police officers were everywhere. In school, on the streets, sat in their patrol cars. In fact, the only place you wouldn't see these cops was when you were at home, safe from the outside world. So... I would try my best to make sure I stay as far away from them or don't do anything that would get me in trouble as a kid. But I just knew the minute I saw cops, I had to go. Like, you don't, you don't say nothing to them. You don't have a conversation with them. Even if they stop you and it seems like a friendly conversation, you just shut up. And RB says the police could be very persistent. Cops would just follow us until we got to the certain part of the city where it was like, okay, we can let them go. Or they would circle the block you'll see the same cop circle the block at least 15 times. Think about it. If this was your experience with a certain group of people, chances are you weren't going to like them all that much. If they kept bugging you, harassing you, and you felt like you couldn't escape them, then a rift was inevitably going to form. This isn't just the experience of RB and his friends. This feels universal, a rite of passage for too many black kids in the Western world. And this was apparently the case in the relationship between white officers and black kids in Maplewood. At first, Mike Morrison was seen differently. He'd carved out a different space. The incident in the cafeteria changed all that. We all bought into his act of caring about us. We all bought into the act. He would see us in the hallway, shake our hands, right? He would joke around with us um, and stuff like that. And after that day, it was all tarnished. When it first started, there were all silent protests. We would just walk out. There were protests being held and board meetings taking place. People wanted Mike out of his job. Police presence, out of schools. Well, the protests really were, <laughs> were being pushed by some of the teachers. There were several teachers involved in this, this, this initiative. Several of them. For Mike... This wasn't a surprise. A lot of teachers resisted the role of the cop in the school. And a lot of it was political. To some of the Black teachers, this incident was an opportunity to protest against the growing police presence in schools. They wanted us to stand up. 
and not let something like this go without answering or repercussions being done. The impact on Mike was immediate and far-reaching. He felt shunned by his community. Even the parents he'd gotten to know personally turned on him, including one mum who helped him run his after-school programs. Her husband passed away. I went to her house and had prayer with the family when her husband passed, right? This woman wrote a letter to the chief of police to remove me out the school, saying the kids are in danger of retaliation. So that is the level of, I want to use the word betrayal, I felt, you know, from, from, from the community. Betrayal. Mike was getting the cold shoulder from everyone. I knew for Officer Mike that was that was a tough a tough thing to deal with. Cause you go, I'm a kid who used to speak to you. Now nah, I don't speak to you at all. You know, you you hear it uh, in the school. You're getting even the kids. You're getting different looks when you walk into the building. You know, it was like the room was going on. Mike felt alone. None of these people called me and asked me, Mike, what happened? Or to get my side of the story. Did you feel as though you'd kind of been hung out to dry and that you were left by yourself? Absolutely. From from the minorities in the community, not from the police department. That's a surprise. After his rocky start at Maplewood PD, Mike felt supported by his fellow officers. The police department know what type of officer I am, know I'm good with, with the kids. Every time there's an issue, every time a parent has an issue with a child, a young man, they would call me. So the police department was very supportive of me. In, in police work, a good officer doing his job is going to get charged. Like, like that's, just, that's just part of the profession, you know. And that's exactly what happened. Mike was charged with assault and he was going to court. Melbourne is a town over from Maplewood. The trial was held there a few months after the incident. Like Maplewood, Melbourne is a suburban town with a slightly smaller population. The municipal courthouse is quaint with a horseshoe car park out front. For all the drama that preceded it, the trial was quick. In the eyes of the law, it wasn't an indictable offense, so it didn't need to be tried at a superior court. There was no jury just witnesses, testimonies, and of course, a judge to make the ruling. It was all pretty low key. I don't remember testifying because their case was so, so messed up. It was so false. The case against Mike depended on the testimony of the kids in the cafeteria. But according to Mike, the testimonies didn't all add up. One kid was like, Officer Mike picked him up with one hand and twirled him around and went down the ground. Another kid was like, he jumped over the banister. I mean, I sound like like a superhero. Mike says the prosecution was painting him as an aggressive police officer, someone who had a problem with violence, using his passion for karate as proof. Some of the kids even tried to get this to be admitted in court to say that I did a karate move on the kids. Some of the kids were even orchestrating to help this whole thing go down. So I was betrayed by even some of the kids in the school. So the evidence was heard... And the judge delivered his verdict. I found not guilty on all charges. And, you know, I I, I felt great. And so that was that. 
it was all over as quickly as it had started. But for RB, Orlando, and the others who were caught up in the aftermath, the impact would last much longer. According to RB, the charges were dropped, but Orlando and others were suspended for the rest of the year. They had to stay home. They couldn't come back into the building. They couldn't come back nowhere near the building. They had to uh, get homeschool for the remaining of the year. But our hopes was to get them to graduate, to get them to be able to go to graduation and, and maybe prom as well. But I, I really cared about the graduation thing. Arby says Orlando didn't walk at graduation that year, wasn't allowed to go up and collect a certificate. That once-in-a-lifetime coming-of-age ceremony that defines the end of high school. And years later, Arby still burns thinking about what happened to his friend that day. I don't trust cops. I'm never going to trust cops. That's why. Because of that situation. Despite the aftermath of the incident, Mike stayed on as resource officer at Columbia for another two years. In 2005, he left the post for a sergeant position, a promotion. Essentially, his career was unaffected. He still insists that his five years at Columbia High School were the best years of his policing career. By the way, we told Mike Morrison that we tried reaching out to Orlando and that we were going to speak with RB for this podcast and that RB wasn't likely to be very positive, to say the least. And Mike was fine with that. In fact, he told us that we should interview people who dislike him or who hate him even. He's a black police officer after all. He knows he's not the most popular guy in the world. So he told us to interview his enemies. So when we told him about Arby's take on what happened in the cafeteria that day, this is what he said. They're children, and you have to be sensitive to their view of what they saw. So because I'm Officer Mike and I'm big and Orlando's uh, a, a smaller guy, from a young person, their perception of what happened may be real to them. So... I would never um, fault a child for his perception of what happened because to him, as a teenager in high school, that probably was a traumatic event for him. Despite going on trial, Mike says that not much changed for him after the incident. He was left pretty unaffected. But there was one change that he noticed. I think what really changed, what really changed, is my relationship with those people. Remember the parent who wrote the letter against Mike, demanding he be removed from Columbia? That relationship was never the same. I saw her in the school. And even after this, I called her in my office. I said, listen, this stuff going around town is crazy. I want you to know that I'm still here for you and your family if you need me. I'm still here for you if anything comes up. And it's like she almost fainted. I almost have to help her stand up. Because in spite of what's going on, I let her know that I'm still there for her and her family. And she left my office. But I knew that my relationship with that group of parents had changed. 20 years later, Mike looks back on the events that unraveled that day and understands that it still contributes to the way black people see police officers, especially how R.B. sees him. It's sad, but it's not unexpected, you know? 
that our community perception of the police is that tainted, that my presence represents to him all that he hates about police officers. So honestly, where do we go from here? For RB and thousands of other black people across the country, there's no going back. The damage has been done. While Mike believed he was pioneering a new type of community policing, RB saw him as an extension of society's desire to police black people, an agent of a racist state. And having more black officers isn't really doing what was hoped. Instead of making black communities feel closer to law enforcement, in some ways, it's increased skepticism and suspicion. Their mere presence is not enough to bridge that gap. Which leaves me asking, maybe this has less to do with race than I'd originally thought. What if it's more about the institution of policing itself? Whoever you are, whatever your race or background, by joining the system, do you inevitably become associated with the worst it has to offer. Because if you're part of a system, the system becomes part of you too. Coming up on Black and Blue, we leave Maplewood and uncover another layer in the Black police experience. Next time, for the first time in this show, we finally hear from a woman. If I had to go to that job tomorrow and he was there, I would not be saying this. There's no telling what the man might do. You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizzell. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizzell. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dila Velasquez and Chris Duncombe. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV. 